This morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 1. This is the first Sunday of a new year, and I am very excited to begin a new sermon series in the epistle to the Ephesians. It has been my practice, and in uh, several churches that I've attended, in fact, I believe every PCA church that I've attended since 2006, to be under the preaching or myself be involved in the preaching through books of the Bible. And that is my intention to do that here in this pulpit as well. As we work through the biblical text, we have the opportunity to hear accurately, we trust, and systematically what God's Word has to speak to us. Preaching through books of the Bible guards us as a congregation, guards you as a congregation against uh, your pastor's hobby horses, and points us right to the text and helps us to to see what God's Word says in a systematic way. It gives us a steady diet as we seek to feed upon Christ in and through His Word. It gives us a balanced diet. So that is a short defense of of what we're doing and what a delight it is to be in um, the book of Ephesians. I almost said the gospel of Ephesians. The gospel is here, and I'm excited to, to get to it. It's a glorious description of the salvation that is ours in Christ. It's also a call to obedience to faithful saints and as a response to that salvation. Various commentators have described this epistle in lofty yet fitting words. One said it is the crown of St. Paul's writings. Another said it's the queen of the epistles. It was John Calvin's favorite epistle. And one individual who was stirred by this epistle as a youth was John Mackay, who later served as the president of Princeton Seminary. And as a 14-year-old boy in the hills of Scotland, the book of Ephesians made an impression upon him. He said that in it he saw a new world. Everything was new. He said, I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitude to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. I pray that for us. And young people, he said that as a 14-year-old. So listen to God's word as it comes to us from Ephesians. And this man was continued to be affected by the book of Ephesians. And when he was an adult um, in 1948, he was called to deliver a lecture series in Edinburgh. And he said he chose Ephesians as his topic. And as an adult, he said that Ephesians is the distilled essence of Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. He said, listen to this, it is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. And I have to agree, and I pray that that we as the people of God, as we sit under the preaching and teaching of of the book of Ephesians, that we will hear that music, that it will become the music of our heart as we see the glorious salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ and the faithfulness and discipleship and obedience that we're called to as a result of that. So with that brief and partial introduction, let us go to God's word, but let us first pray and ask his blessing upon the preaching of the word. Lord God, we are so needy and yet we are so rich. We think of what you have done for us in Christ and we rejoice and our hearts overflow. And yet, Lord, we recognize we are so needy. We are sinful creatures and we need your word. 
So Lord, would you feed us upon your word this morning? May it be the desire of our hearts. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Ephesians 1, and we'll read just the first two verses. If you have a pew Bible, I believe it's on page 976. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. My purpose in this message this morning is twofold. First, it is to give an introduction to the book and a bit of an overview. And secondly, we want to look at these verses and seek to understand what God's word is speaking to us this morning. So I'll warn you from the outset, my introduction has three points and my sermon has four points. So maybe in an hour we'll be done. No, I'm, I'm about a 30 or a, at most 35 minute preacher. So we'll move rapidly as we go along. Now, when our family embarks on a trip, I'm typically the driver and my wife is often the navigator. And, and if, if you're like us, you usually pull up the address on your phone of where you're headed to and you, and you put it in and you get those turn-by-turn -turn directions. But I'm the kind of guy that likes to have the overview. I like to see the whole route before I go. I don't want to just know the next turn. I want to know the whole route and where we're going to be going. I kind of like an old paper atlas, but you can't zoom in very good on those paper atlases. So I do stick to the phone, but I like to see the overview. So I want us to have a little bit of an overview of the book of Ephesians. It's pretty easy. If you've read it very much, you see there's two main divisions. But I'm going to give you three words, and I, these are not original to me. I uh, heard a great sermon on, on Ephesians uh, 1 this week, and, and this preacher actually borrowed them, I believe, from John Stott. But the three words are this, wealth, walk, and war. Wealth, walk, and war. That, again, is not the outline for my sermon, but uh, a practical and helpful overview for our journey. First of all, wealth. Believer in Jesus Christ, you are extremely wealthy. The first three chapters of Ephesians deal with the glorious truths of what God has done for us in Christ. Next week, we'll launch into the section that I prayed at the beginning of my prayer, beginning with verse 3, talking about what God has done for us and how he has heaped up this incredible wealth of spiritual blessings upon us. Christian, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world, you have been predestined for adoption, raising you to new life and bringing you into God's family as a son or daughter. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses, all according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. We are wealthy people. We who were dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive. By grace you have been saved. We who were once far off, but not only, not only a long ways away far off, but separated and alienated from the family of God and from the love of God, we have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul is either explaining the riches of Christ he is, or he is praising God for these unsearchable riches, 
Or he is praying, as he does in chapters 1 and 3, that the readers, his readers would grasp the riches of those blessings and of their glorious inheritance and that they would have the strength to comprehend the length and breadth and height and depth of God's love and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Believer in Christ, you are wealthy. But then, what are we called to do as a result of the wealth that is ours in Christ? That brings us to the next word, walk. And beginning in chapter 4, we see how that grace that is ours in Christ affects how we live, our walk. We're given exhortation on what our response should be to that. We are called to walk worthy of the calling that he has placed upon us. And we're given instructions where that's fleshed out for us, beginning in chapter 4, where it talks about the church and how the church should function. We're reminded that there's things to put off and things to put on. In other words, there's, there's sins that we need to lay aside and there's, there's things that we need to pick up and make our own and live out. We're called to holiness, not as a means of obtaining salvation, but because of the great salvation that was displayed in the first three chapters. This calling upon our lives and how we walk will stretch from our speech to our emotions, to our thought life, to our relationships inside and outside the home, to our marriages, to the workplace, and even to what we put in our bodies and how much of it. But the beauty of all this is that we're first told of our incredible wealth before we're reminded how to walk. So there's wealth. It affects our walk. And, the, and thirdly, we are in a war. And we're called that we're reminded that we have an enemy, an adversary, the devil, who, who walks about, as it says in elsewhere in Scripture, seeking whom he may devour. And we're called to resist him. And we're called to put on the armor of God. And by it, we can stand against the schemes of the devil. We can stand because we know what God has done for us. We know of the wealth that we've been given. God is the ultimate power in the universe. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He's given us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? His riches are ours. All his kindness is ours. His power empowers us over sin. And Satan, while he is a defeated foe, is still scheming and will still trip us up. So we're reminded that we're at war and we must put on the armor of God, as it tells us in chapter 6. And God will give us strength to stand firm. So that's my introduction. That's the big picture. That's where we're headed, if you will, as an overview so let us get to the text. Let us consider these opening verses, and that brings us to my outline that you have before us, four words beginning with S, concerning the Ephesians, the recipients of this letter, their status, their setting, their security, and the source of it all. The text, as most of Paul's epistles, begins with his name because he wrote it, and he is sending an official letter, and, and letters of this age and time um, begin with the author's name. The church believed that he was the author for 18 centuries, and only in the last couple hundred years have 
liberal scholars called that into question. I won't go into the details of that, but, but the text tells me that Paul wrote it, and I believe the text. Now, there's a lot of other evidence that brings support to it. If you want to have a discussion about that, I can, I can do so. But Paul wrote this letter. He is writing to the Ephesians. He had spent about three years there. Uh, it was a place he dearly loved. You can read in Acts of, of, the, of the emotional and tearful departing when he made his departure from Ephesians. But he, he is writing to them, and he says two things about them. He says that they are saints and that they are faithful. A saint is a holy one, one that has been set aside, one that is sanctified. Now, you may not feel very saintly today, but according to Scripture, if you are in Christ, then the Bible calls you a saint. You're made a saint not by your own efforts or good deeds, but because of what Christ has done in you and for you. When we lived in Wichita, Kansas, I became interested in the story. I like military history, and I became interested in the story of Emil Capon. You might be familiar with his story. He was a Catholic priest and, a, I believe, a captain in the army in World War II and the Korean conflict. And um, he was, uh, like I said, a priest and uh, ministered to, to Catholic men in the, in the military. He was brave and highly decorated, and he was awarded the Bronze Star, the Legion of Merit, and the Medal of Honor, among other uh, awards that you can look up and find out about. His bravery is inspiring, and so much so that some in the Roman Catholic Church have made an effort to see him canonized as a saint. There's kind of some ongoing controversy, though, because the Catholic Church, as you might know, has very high standards for those that they call saints, um, one of which is they have to perform miracles. And so those that are in support of this effort have, have submitted hundreds, if not thousands, of pages to the Vatican to seek to uh, get this man canonized as a saint. Unfortunately, sainthood is, for them, uh, sainthood is not based upon something one does, as we've already said, but something that is done to us and for us. It's not a declaration made about us after we die based upon our spiritual stature, but it's a declaration made by the transformation that comes at the beginning of the Christian life. So if you have repented of your sins and are trusting in Christ as your Savior, then the Bible calls you a saint. It's not something you have to do. It's not heroic acts that you have to do. It's your status in Christ. You are a saint if you are a believer in Christ. But not only are the Ephesians called saints, Paul calls them faithful this describes their response to God's grace. They're seeking to faithful, faithfully follow Christ and his commands. And interestingly, these two words point to the two major sections of the book. The first three, which deal with what has happened and what God has done for us in Christ. We call that the indicative because it indicates our position in Christ. By the way, two terms that you'll probably hear as we go along are the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what God has done for us and our status because of God's work in us. And the imperative is what we do as a result of that. Chapter 4 and going forward, chapters 4, 5, and the first part of 6. So hopefully you'll become familiar with that. So who are you? If you are in Christ, you are a saint. 
And I pray that you are striving to be faithful because that's what God requires of us. And I, I trust that that describes us as believers in Christ here in Lee Summit, that we are saints and that we are faithful in Christ. So that is their status. But where are they? What is their setting? Paul deals with this as well. He says that, he says, really, they're living in two worlds. And I offer to you, that's what we're doing as well. He says, they are in Ephesus, but they are also in Christ. And we'll see later how, how our salvation is, is dealing not just with, with the here and now, but, but the eternal as well. And, and how that our status is settled in heaven in eternity. And what a blessing that is. And that's part of being in Christ. And we'll see that unpacked as we go along. Paul loves this term in Christ. And, and so he's speaking of both their, their physical as well as their spiritual setting. And it's interesting how he pairs them. He says they're saints in Ephesus. Now that might not seem significant to you at first, but when we consider what Ephesus was and how big it was, and probably there was a, a minority, the Christians were a minority in that, it, it might be like writing to the Christians at CNN or addressing the saints at the Disney Corporation. Now, I, I hope and pray that there are Christians in those organizations, but they probably feel like a minority. And I imagine that the Ephesians did as well. Ephesus was an idol-worshiping city. It was likely the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at that time. Uh, one commentator said around 300,000, which may be small by today's standards when it comes to large cities. But in that day and time, it was, it was a big city. It was the center of the worship of Diana, or the, the other name given is Artemis. The temple that was built there in her honor was so elaborate that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Some of you children may have memorized those seven wonders, and, and one of those was right here in Ephesus. Paul had ministered there, as we said, for three years, and, and evidently the preaching of the gospel did make an impact in, in some sections of that culture. So much so that one of the silversmiths who were makers of idols felt that their livelihood was being threatened and called other silversmiths together. It, it kind of reminded you of a, uh, that, that, that Paul may have ruffled the feathers of the silversmith union uh, because their livelihood was threatened because Christians were coming to faith. We read in Acts 19 how a riot broke out because of the way the gospel was affecting that idol-making and idol-worshiping center. But we, we have to imagine that, that the believers there were probably, probably felt marginalized in this huge city surrounded with idols. So Paul reminds them, not just that they're in Ephesus, but they are in Christ. And we need to consider what difference that makes. So yes, the political and religious structure was against them. The economy was, was partially supported by the idolatry that filled the, the city. And there was an overarching philosophy that was anti-Christian. Yes, they were in Ephesus, but they were in Christ. And we'll see in the coming verses the difference that that makes. So let me ask you this morning, what is, what is your setting? What is your location I reflected upon this this week, and, and it, it is a blessing to be a minister, 
to, to be able to study God's word. But I also know what it's like to be able to, to, to go out these doors and have to think about going to work. And, and just in things that I've read, I know that, that some of you probably work in more hostile work environments than I ever had to work in before I went into ministry. And I recognize that being in Ephesus, whatever your Ephesus is, your workplace, your surrounding, your setting, the culture that you are in Monday through Saturday might be really rough, might be really tough. Being a saint in Ephesus for you could be very challenging. It could be very tempting. But I tell you, saints of Christ the Redeemer, if you are in Christ, it should make a difference when you go to Ephesus. It makes a difference because we are in Christ. And Paul, Paul unpacks this in, in just, just glorious language. I, I, I'm just excited to be here in the book of Ephesus because it should make, in, in Ephesians, because it should make a difference how we live and when we face the temptations that come at us day by day and moment by moment sometimes. So what do we do? Paul has good news for us, and he speaks grace and peace. And that brings us to our third point, our security. Our security is that grace and peace provided for us in Christ. Look with me at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Their security was not in their culture. It was not in their setting. They didn't lean upon the local god of, goddess. Artemis for their hope. In fact, believers at Ephesus had made a clean break with that lifestyle. We read again, looking back to Acts 19, that where it describes for us that many of those in Ephesus who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. We see a, a revival of sorts there in Ephesus. And again, I, I, I don't think it affected a huge percentage of the population, but it was significant nonetheless. But that was probably about 10 years ago from where we are here in, in reading what Paul wrote. Paul is writing them several years later from a prison cell or more likely under house arrest and seeking to encourage him. But how many times do we begin well? I read about the apostle Peter and how he spoke with such determination and he said, Lord, if all the other disciples forsake you, not me, I'm going to be with you. And, and, and I've fought similarly at times. But unfortunately, sometimes when the going gets rough, it's hard. And we fall like Peter did. Perhaps the Ephesians were like that. Ones who may have burned their magic books now a decade or so later are not resting in the work of Christ as they should. Perhaps that culture has crept into their life. And I ask you, how has the culture crept into your life? Are you more affected by those around you? by the materialism that you see paraded in front of you all the time, by the temptations that the devil keeps putting in front of you, 
How much are you affected by the culture? Where are your priorities? Look to God's word. Paul is reminding us that our security is in the grace and peace of God. What is grace? Well, it is, you probably know, it's undeserved favor. God's riches at Christ's expense, someone else has said. And especially the first half of the book extols God's grace. It's God's mercy upon sin-loving and hell-deserving people like you and me. It's new life to spiritually dead sinners, we'll see in Ephesians 2. Grace is shown in God's eternal election of fallen sinners and calling them to himself and giving them the gift of eternal life and giving them new life in Christ and changing them from the inside out. And because of God's grace, we have peace. Peace with God, first and foremost, but peace with each other. And it should bring unity in the body of Christ, as we'll see later in the book. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we must meditate much upon God's grace. It has been lavished upon us. That, that word means to extra, in, given in extravagant quantities. Grace has been poured out liberally upon us. I heard one preacher say this, that, that fish swim in an ocean of water and Christians swim in an ocean of God's grace. What a blessed thought that grace surrounds us at all times. We have been blessed by God's grace. In chapter 6, the, the good news is called the, the gospel of peace. In chapter 2, we see that Christ himself is our peace. And also that he preached peace to sinners. His death and resurrection has brought peace to us. Paul can speak peace to our hearts because Christ's death has accomplished our peace. And then finally, Paul points to the source of it all. The source, of course, is from God. He says, it is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We could see in, in here Paul's uh, own conversion because he, he lists God the Father there first. And, and you think about the apostle Paul or Saul as he was called that day, he was breathing out threatenings and cruelties and, and persecuting Christians, thinking that he was pleasing God, who he called his father even at that time. But Paul met Christ the Lord on the road to Damascus. He met the Lord, and he, he recognized Christ as his Savior. He recognized him as Christ, as the Messiah. He bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. But even if Paul is, and I know that Paul is thinking more than just his own conversion here, and there's more for us to see here because we see the work of God in salvation. It's because of God's great love and because he is rich in mercy. Some would have us believe that, that God's stance toward us is, is angry, is, is, is the angry man upstairs, and it takes Jesus to appease that wrath. And there is a sense in which God is angry at sin. But yet, God's attitude towards his people is one of love and grace. He, he orchestrated our salvation. He has called us 
from all eternity. He has predestined us. He has adopted us and made us his own. God loves his children. But it's all connected to Christ as well. Christ the Son. God the Son has accomplished our salvation by his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection for us. We are chosen in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. Paul describes the gospel as the unsearchable riches of Christ, which we've chosen as the title for this sermon series because the, the, the riches of Christ are, we'll, we won't plumb the depths of them in this sermon series. The apostle Paul cannot plumb the depths, even in the inspired words of scripture, the depths of God's love for us in Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The person and work of Christ finds its way into nearly every sentence in this opening section. And while the Holy Spirit is not specifically mentioned in this introduction, the work of salvation that Paul describes is thoroughly Trinitarian. It's the Spirit that applies the work of salvation that was purchased by Christ. Believers are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who also guarantees our inheritance. Paul speaks grace and peace to us because God is the source of all grace and all peace. Paul gives us a lot in just these opening two verses. He reminds the readers and he reminds us of our status. Who are we? Who are they? They are saints and they are faithful. They're saints not because of their own good deeds or their own meritorious service or their bravery or self-sacrifice, they're saints because of the work that God has done in them through Christ. And they are faithful. They are seeking to follow Christ. And then Paul reminds them of their setting. Yes, they're in Ephesus, but they are in Christ. And that makes all the difference. And then he tells them of their security, reminding them that it is all of grace which brings peace. And all of this is based in the source of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We praise God for his work on our behalf and the grace that is ours in Christ. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O oh God, for your goodness. We are the recipients of lavish grace. So, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your goodness, remind us of your grace. And, Lord, when we face the temptations of the world, when we face the hostilities of the world, Lord, when we are in Christ, we pray that we would, we would drive down our roots in that and that we would be strong in you because of what you have done for us in Christ. This we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.